as we focus on Advent, Advent means arrival, and we anticipate the arrival of Jesus. And so it's this, uh, when we come today, especially kicking off uh, our time in Advent, we come with this unique pairing as Jesus followers in 2022. Uh, because we're going to talk today about the first Advent of Jesus. Um, but we, we come celebrating that first Advent because uh, the ultimate work of Jesus was uh, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But none of those are possible without the incarnation. And so we celebrate the first arrival of Jesus saying, Jesus, we are so thankful that you put on uh, flesh and bones and that you, you moved into our neighborhoods and you made yourself present here on earth, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And then simultaneously, we, again, our whole lives are just living in tension. So we, we celebrate the first advent, the first arrival of Jesus. And then all the while, we say the world is not as it should be. And we believe that uh, with all of our hearts that Jesus has promised to return and make all things new. And we're holding the tension that, yes, Jesus' work was complete and finished and done and enough uh, for his first advent. And all the while, Jesus, we need you. We need you. We long for your return. We hope with anxious uh, expectation that you will come and make all things right. And so that, to me, is where uh, today, uh, Pam read that we're, we're focusing on hope today. And that's where hope enters into the equation. And it's really easy for us, as we talk about Advent, and we look at the story, it's really easy for us to put um, uh, our modern lenses on as we read these stories. Because we know the ultimate, which is great, and we should, we, we know the ultimate end of, of all of this, that, uh, that God promised a, a Savior, God promised a Messiah, and uh, promised a Christ, and then he sent one. But if you will, imagine with me, uh, putting yourselves in the, uh, in the shoes of first century uh, Jews that were waiting with hopeful expectation for something that was promised. We had this happen this week. Uh, one of uh, my in-laws loved, love, love, love Dollywood. And so we were down in Tennessee, and it was a yearly tradition for us to go to Dollywood. And beautiful weather is like low to mid-60s. Uh, we, we went, we Eight, we rode some. I don't do rides, but the boys do rides. And so we did all the rides. Hudson and I did uh, a lot of bumper cars. And there was conversation as we were there with Amanda's uh, brother, sister-in-law, their kids, her parents, um, because we always do Christmas when we go down for Thanksgiving, too. And there was conversation of, hey, if everyone's, all the kids, because Hudson and Miles and then the other three cousins are younger than them, if everyone's doing okay when we get home from Dollywood, maybe we'll just knock presents out on Wednesday night so tomorrow can just be Thanksgiving. And uh, Hudson and Miles got wind of this. And so every step along the way, I don't know if you've ever had something promised to you as a kid or to one of your kids, but every step along the way, Hudson was like, we'd be walking around, and he knew what it was predicated on, everyone having a good, good time, being in good spirits. He's like, I'm, he kept saying to me, I am in a great mood, Dad. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm so glad, buddy. He was like, I am, I am, everyone's doing great. And I was like, I, you are, I am so proud of you. Uh, and he was like, so? 
And so uh, he, the entire day, was in a, again, it worked. It was in a wonderful mood because something was promised to him. And he put all of his hope in that. Like, I'm going to drive my life at this. That if everybody has a good day, and if Miles has a good day, and Kalia has a good day, and Keegan has a good day, that we'll all get to open presents tonight when we get home. And this was the thing that he clung to. And while a little bit trivial, because it's just Christmas presents, I don't think it's totally dissimilar from the experience of the first century Jews. That, that they were clinging to the promises of God, that the world was not as it should be, and that God had promised to send a Messiah, promised to send a Savior, promised to send a King. And, and that's where we encounter... Uh, a man named Simeon. Uh, so we're in Luke chapter 2. We encounter uh, a man named Simeon who we just, this is really the only glimpse of him. There's some other Simeons in the Bible. It's really the only glimpse of Simeon that we get in uh, Scripture. And uh, we encounter someone who is waiting with hopeful expectation for the promises of God to come true. Here's what it says. We're going to start in verse uh, 25. I'm going to read through the whole thing. Uh, so Luke chapter 2, verse 25, and here's what it says. Luke writes, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. By the consolation of Israel, he's, he's waiting on the, the restoration. Uh, he's waiting on God to do what he had promised that he would do in rescuing them out of uh, oppression. And it goes on to say, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that was on him, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved with the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child uh, Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and in the glory of your people, Israel. And like I said, it can be really hard for us to put ourselves in Simeon's shoes because we know the end of the story. But as an exercise in hope this morning, I want us to do exactly that. So you have Simeon who is, it says, a devout, uh, a devout uh, God follower, a devout Jew, a very religious man who uh, would have spent his entire life studying Judaism, uh, studying the law, studying the prophets, um, been shaped and molded by that experience. He would have known the scriptures, the Old Testament, inside and out if he was devout, and continued to study them into adulthood. His life would have been marked by all the observations and commitments of, uh, of someone who was religious at this time. And he would have been probably, if he studies this devout, he probably would have been looked to as as a community uh, by someone who is just really, really godly. But Simeon was human, so, so we know uh, that he would have been also shaped and been no stranger to like hardships that come with being human, that, that sometimes life is messy and sometimes life is broken. 
And he would have, uh, again, had all of the story of God and, and the history of God's people in the back of his mind all through this time. He would have known that the world was created by God, breathed into existence, and God said it was good. That it was fundamentally like perfect because it was breathed into life by God. But then sin uh, and disobedience enters the world through Adam and Eve and, and creates this division and creates this brokenness in the world. But God promises that he's not going to leave it that way. He's not going to leave it broken. He's not going to leave it uh, all fractured. And so as, as an effort to kind of institute, we're going to make things whole again. God chooses a people, the people of Israel. He chooses Abraham and he says, through you, I'm going to make a nation that's going to be a blessing to all other nations. Through you, you, uh, you your people are going to be my redemptive uh, people. They're going to be my people as representatives for me here on the earth that as people uh, know and love and follow me, they're going to see me through you being lived out in the world. And so God chooses the people and he makes a promise. He makes a covenant that through you I'm going to redeem all of the world. That Everything that went wrong through sin entering the world is going to be made right through your people. And he makes a covenant with them. Now, by nature, a covenant means uh, it's not a promise. It's not a contract. A covenant, by nature, means that like there's one party involved, that there's consequences uh, if it's broken. Okay? There's, uh, there's consequences if one party doesn't uphold their end of the covenant. But God says, you're not going to be able to do it, Israel. You're just not going to be able to. That's the result of sin in the world. But guess what? I, as God, will uphold your end of the covenant for you. So you're never going to be able to do it. We're going to make a covenant. I'm making this covenant in, uh, with the knowledge that you're never going to be able to uphold your end. Uh, but I'm going to uphold your end of the covenant for you. So then Israel, God's people, chosen to be God's redemptive agents, redemptive people in this world, uh, Israel is surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, consistently unfaithful to God. I uh, have been reading through uh, Jeremiah as of late, and some of the first half of Jeremiah, the, the, the language that God uses to describe uh, the people of Israel is intense. He talks about how Israel is like his love and how they've gone to all of these other lovers and committed adultery on them. And he, and he uses this language that's really, really intense. But to me, it shows the level of unfaithfulness that was going on to God, that they were going and worshiping all these other created gods, that they were going and giving their hearts and their lives and surrendering their things, uh, their, their, their lives to things that were not the speaker of all creation like the creator of all things. And so they're consistently unfaithful. Um, and they have some bright spots. They have some moments where uh, there's, uh, there's a king named uh, Josiah, and uh, he's, he's the, one of the young, on the younger end of the spectrum of kings. And there's, they find all of God's law just tucked away in a closet somewhere. And he goes, oh, we haven't been following 
any of this. Um, and so he uh, says, hey, we got we to gotta mourn. We got to repent. We got to turn back. And so they do it. And it's going well for a little while. And then uh, there's a new king and they don't follow God. And so he, uh, God institutes all these things. He puts kings in place as an image of what it looks like. Uh, again, he was like, no, I'll just be your king, Israel. And they're like, no, everyone around us has a king. We want one. So he puts kings in place even as a, as a redemptive element of saying, okay, let's at least, if I'm going to put a king in your place, let's at least uh, show the world what it looks like to sit under the kingship of God. And they throw it out the window. The kings are evil. They're wicked. They don't follow God. He sends prophets, a good chunk of the Old Testament. He sends prophets as a reminder like uh, time and time again, and sometimes they're happening at the same time, sometimes they're sequential, but a good chunk of the Old Testament is prophets reminding the people of Israel, turn back to God, remember the covenant that we made with God, follow God, give your heart to God, give your life to God. You have completely blown it, but his mercies are new. Let him uh, into our lives. And consistently, as they speak this message, uh, the people are like, "Mm, no, I think we're good. They ignore it. And so that brings us to the situation we're in now. Uh, the boys have this book called The Biggest Story, one of my favorite children's books of all time. And it's uh, small chapters, and it just is the whole story of God working in the world. And this is from the excerpt. Uh, this is an excerpt from uh, what is the end of the Old Testament in, in that story. It says, And so one day it happened. God stopped sending prophets. No more warnings. No more direction, no more word from the Lord, only silence for 400 years. That's recognized in the, in the intertestamental period, which is from the end of the Old Testament, when the Old Testament stopped being written, uh, to Jesus coming on the scene. 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. That is longer than we have been uh, incorporated as a country. 400 years of silence from God. God had sent prophets, priests, and kings. He started out with Adam and started over with Noah. He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gave Moses the law. He sent Israel judges. He raised up deliverers. He conquered enemies. He provided sacrifices. He lived among his people in a tent and in a temple. God gave them every opportunity and 10,000 chances, but still sin and that crafty serpent seem to be winning. And this church is what is on Simeon's brain as he sits in the temple on that day. The, the, The Holy Spirit had promised him, the Spirit had promised him that he would not die until he witnessed the one that was promised. Until he witnessed the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the one that would come and make things right. And he's sitting there and he knows that promise. And all the while, all of these things are running through his brain. That he knows the history, that he knows how much they've screwed up, that he, he knows how ugly things have been, how he knows how disobedient his people have been. But still he sits He sits and he clings to the promise that no, the world is not as it should be, but God has promised that he's going to make things right. He has 
hope. He has hope. That the world is ugly and it's broken and it's dislocated and fractured and it's chaotic, but God is going to come make order out of all of that. He probably, I imagine, as an exercise in hope, would have been uh, constantly uh, leaning back on God and, and reciting his promises uh, back to him. Because this is what I have to do when I'm leaning on the promises of God. I have to say, okay, what is, what is God's promise to say? And he says, in Genesis 3, probably he's repeating to himself, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and, and, and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay, God, you've promised that you're going to defeat uh, sin and the devil, the accuser, you're going to win. Uh, I mean, he's probably repeating to himself uh, the promises from Deuteronomy where he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. He probably would have been uh, remembering the promises from Isaiah that says, therefore the Lord will give, yourself, give himself uh, to you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Um, he would have been remembering the, uh, the other promises where it says, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Where the Lord says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. He would have remembered the words of Micah that said, but you, Bethlehem, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He would have remembered the words of Zechariah that says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the full of a donkey. And no doubt Simeon, as a devout man, would have constantly had these on a repeat over the course of his life. That he's saying, God, I don't see how you're going to do this. I don't have, I don't have any idea how this is going to come to pass, but I am choosing as an active step to put my hope in you. Because I think on some level, this goes past just putting uh, his hope in the promises. Because ultimately, for us to have any hope in the promises of God, we have to take the next step and put hope in the character of God. Because if we can't put our trust, we can't, if we can't rely on the character of God, like who God is at his core, at his essence, then we have no business putting our hope in the promises of God. But if we can, at the end of the day, <coughs> if we can, at the end of the day, say, I trust who God is. I know who God is. <coughs> and so, therefore, because I know who he is, I'm in relationship with him. I trust in him, so I will trust what he says. He chose to trust in the God that makes promises, uh, and he chose to trust that the God that makes those promises will keep those promises. That the, as the psalm says, I talked about this on, on my first Sunday, that God didn't go off and leave us. That God, even in the midst of obscurity and 400 years of silence, was working out his plan 
of salvation. Simeon chose unswerving hope that God was who he said he was and would do what he said he would do. And as Luke tells us, it's in the midst of that hope, it's in the midst of the watching and the waiting that Simeon encounters Jesus. Now, I don't know how this played out on a practical level, but I can imagine, uh, because Simeon's a devout man, he's no stranger to the temple, um, and I imagine there was a lot of occasions that Simeon would show up to uh, the temple and just kind of look around and go, God promised that I would see the Messiah, that I would see the one who would make all of this right before I died. And he'd probably just go to the temple and, and look around and, uh, you, you the, the Messiah? No, okay. You, you the Messiah? No, no. But as soon as he sees Jesus, as soon as he sees uh, the one that had been promised, his immediate reaction is praise and adoration, glorification. He scoops him up in his arms because this is what I've been waiting on. This is what I've been waiting on. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, God, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. There's a line uh, in um, the hymn that says, uh, I'm looking now across the valley where my faith shall end in sight. This is what's happening to Simeon. He has this hope, he has this faith, he has this expectation, and at a moment of encounter with Jesus, my eyes have seen your salvation. I've seen it. I don't need anything else. I can go now, Lord. I know that your promises are true because you promised me a Messiah. I scooped him up. I held him in my arms. He is simultaneously just like me. He's got fingers and toes and he breathes and he coos and he probably cries all the time. And simultaneously, he is the author of life. I've seen it. I've seen it, God. He no longer had to hope for the Messiah because he had just encountered the Messiah. And this, brothers and sisters, is where we encounter the story of Advent. That we come to the table with our longings and our desires and our hopes and our dreams and we are putting our trust in Jesus who is working all of these things out inside of us. So it might be that you come here today hoping that your life can be transformed. That you go, it is in shambles and it's a mess and I don't know what to make of it. Put your hope in Christ. He's promised that he can make it new. He's promised, uh, we, we know in Scripture, that anyone who is in Christ Jesus, who fix, uh, fits their life into the kingship of Jesus, who surrenders their life to him, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. He can make you new. You might come today hoping that life will just slow down. That You say, I can't bear the weight of living anymore. I can't bear the weight of everything swirling and going on around me. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in Jesus. He offers you, we talked about this several weeks ago, he offers you a, a new yoke, a new burden that is easy and light. You might come today with brokenness invading every single area of your life. Put your hope in Christ. 
Because in him, we, we receive the promise that all of those broken and dislocated pieces of the universe are fixed and fit together to sing in vibrant harmonies. Things make sense when they find their place in Christ. You might come today to reading news stories, being with your family over Thanksgiving, having eyes to see the world around us, going, things are just junk. It's messy. It's broken. The world is not as it should be. Brothers and sisters, put your hope in Christ because he has promised that he is coming and he will make all things new. That he can go off and leave us. He's going to return, and when we hope in that, we, we, we trust that he will make all things new. And like I said, at some point, our, we're going to make this transition where we go from, from trusting in the promises of God to just going, I am so intimately involved in relationship with God that, yeah, his promises are true. I know who he is. I know his character. I've spent time with him. I've seen him. I've walked with him. I know him. And so I can just I trust that the things he said are true. They don't have to be plausible or likely or even possible. If God says it, I'm going to trust in it. Paul talks about it this way. He says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in the person of Jesus. And so we can have hope because we know Jesus. We can have hope because we know Jesus. So we sit here today celebrating the first advent of Jesus, saying that that work was enough for me, that my life can be redeemed because of the incarnation, because of the work of Jesus, uh, living the life that we couldn't, dying the death that we deserved, being raised back to life. And also, we live with hope, saying, come, Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you in our lives today. We need you in our lives tomorrow, and we want your return. We're inviting it. We're asking for it. Come, Lord Jesus. And it's for me when I uh, pause in those moments and I uh, begin to do some reflection that songs like uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel really begin to come to life for me. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, God with us, come and ransom captive Israel. We're not in uh, the place that we should be. We're still in exile here, and we need you to ransom us. We need you to redeem us. Uh, we're in exile here, and we're mourning because, again, the world is not as it should be, and we're mourning until the Son of God appears. We're longing with hopeful expectation for the return of Jesus. But we can, we can rejoice because God with us, Emmanuel, is coming. So I want us to close uh, with just proclaiming this song. And so uh, here's what I'm going to ask of you. If you uh, I'm going to ask us to stand here a little bit. If you would uh, like to sing and, and proclaim this truth, do it. 
If you uh, need some time to reflect on the reality of hope in your life, do it. Uh, but, but we can have a hope because we know the person of Jesus. We can have hope because we know Jesus. And because we know Jesus, we can trust that his promises are true. And he has promised that he hasn't gone off and left us. He will return for us. And that his work on the cross was sufficient. So if you guys wouldn't mind standing, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to uh, proclaim this truth together. So Jesus, it is in you that we do put our hope. You are the light of the world. You are the hope of our lives. So as we uh, recite these truths to one another, will you ingrain them inside of us? And Lord, that is, this is our cry, that you will come. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in you that we put our hope. And we love you deeply. We ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.